0: Heavenly Father, I just thank you for an opportunity to share your word. I thank you for the the capability to give you my gifting. I pray that the words that I speak would be used to transform lives, to empower people, and to focus them in on what you have for this time and this season, Lord. Be with us and use me. May the words that I speak touch their spirits in a special way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So as we turn to the book of Colossians, let me set the stage for you. Um, Colossae is a church that uh, that Paul did not found himself. It, it was founded by a man named Epaphras, and he was likely a disciple of Paul's. Paul had not visited the church at Colossae. Um, but the people there... They're a very diverse group of people for many reasons. Uh, There's there's a very diverse group of ideas and values and principles that flow through Colossae. For one main reason is that the the place where the city is situated was on a roadway to Ephesus, which was a major economic uh, hub at the time. And so, you know, back in those days, it's not like you just drove through a city on your way to the next city, right? Oftentimes, you were needing to arrive, stay the night, maybe stay a few days at a city so that you had enough uh, energy and food and time and sleep and everything to get to the next city. So uh, Colossae served as this stopping ground as a way for people, traders, to get to Ephesus. So you can imagine if this was a major economic hub that they were trying to get through, you had all sorts of thoughts ideas, and values being driven through this space. So Colossae is rich in ideas, they're rich in income, and they're rich in spiritual activity. They were a very spiritual group, and they had a lot of different uh, beliefs when it came to their faith. One of the predominant beliefs is this idea of God being the the, the creator being absolutely perfect and incapable of having any contact with imperfection. And we hear that and we say like, okay, that sounds sounds like, yeah, God, God can't be uh, around something that's imperfect. But what would that mean about his ability to interact with us? I don't know about you, but you could ask my wife. She'd tell you I'm pretty imperfect in a lot of different ways. Right. And so what that meant in the belief system in Colossae was oftentimes that, well, God can't interact with the earth, period. And so what God did is what they believe what God did was create these slightly less than perfect beings that they called intermediaries that could interact with the world. So that God could, through these many different intermediaries, meet with the world so that his will could be done on earth. And so there are these many different intermediaries who are all themselves slightly imperfect so that they could touch our imperfect world and speak up to God. And so as Christianity begins to enter into Colossae, the Colossians have no problem with it. Because they look at Jesus, and they see Jesus as one of these intermediaries. Oh, well, you know, through him we get to the Father. That's what he said. Yeah, we're we're good with that. So we'll take this imperfect being that you guys are talking to us about, and we'll just, you know, we'll, we'll worship God through him the same way we worship God through all the other things. And that's where, it's like, hold up. That's not what the word says. And so Paul is writing to this church who he has authority with because they know of what he's done in, uh, in in the faith, but he has never visited his, never put his fingerprints on, and he's about to set some things straight. Sometimes you you know you gotta set the record straight about what's being said in the world, and some you know oftentimes we set the record straight about ourselves, but more importantly we gotta set the record straight about how our God is perceived. Amen. So. We're going to start uh, up on the screen. They'll have uh, verse 15, but I'm going to start back just a few verses uh, at verse 12 in Colossians chapter 1. And giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us in to the kingdom of His Son, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Now church, let me just pause. Who are we talking about here? Jesus. Who are we talking about here? Jesus. Jesus. But it's very clear. Paul's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the Son, and then he continues on to say, "He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things in him. All things are held together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the father's good pleasure for all fullness to dwell in him. Through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Now, for some of you right now, you're like, I'm good. I got the word. I'm good. I'm full. Because that is a good word, guys. This is a powerful passage of scripture. On the supremacy of of Christ on the incomparable nature of who our risen savior is not one of these imperfect intermediaries but the perfect representation of God here on earth for us so let's dive deeper into this this passage of scripture here it starts off by saying the son is the image of the invisible God. Now, when we think of image, we, we, we often think of something close to the real thing, but not quite really it. Like that's, that's you, you know, you look at a, a father and a son, and you're like, oh, I can see your father's image in you. But the father isn't, or the son isn't exactly like the father, right? Or, or I think of my kids, when, when we go to the movie theaters, right, and we're going to see one of their uh, little superhero movies, and they always have at the movie theaters now these big carve-out images of whoever the superhero is. You know, I, I think of the last couple we went to go see, the, the Little Mermaid movie and uh, the, the Spider-Man movie, right? And what do the kids all do? They run up to the image, and they're so excited to be seen next to the image because, because they've been looking up to the image and they, they, they enjoy the image and the, the image entertains them. And what do they want to do after we watch the movie? They want to take a picture, right? They want to take a picture with the image and then they want to get the costume. They want to get the costume so that they can be in the image. They, they want to look just like they're a hero on the screen. And then they'll run around and they'll take on characteristics of the image. Oh, well, Daddy, you're Hulk because you're the biggest. And, and Mommy, you're, you're uh, Gwen because you're the prettiest. And I'm Miles because I'm the fastest. And, and they take on the characteristics of the image that they saw and they want to live it out in the world and it's fun. But, church, let me tell you, that's not the image that we're talking about when we talk about Christ and the Father. The image, the the word that's used here for image, is like a coin press. It's like a coin press. It's an exact reproduction of that which it was made to identify. See, I'm not a coin collector. I don't know if any of you in here are. But if there is a a coin, a golden eagle coin, there's a press that, that is made to only produce this exact image upon the metal. That's the level of image that Christ is of God. He is the exact reproduction only. And here's the best part. This ain't a coin that you can walk into Disneyland and just drop your penny in and have the image remade. Christ is the only one. He is one of one. If he was a coin that was out there looking, he is the rarest of them all. The only one to come down from heaven into our earth. Unlike all these intermediaries that were imperfect beings, imperfect copies of who God was as Colossians believed uh, Jesus, Paul is making very clear. No, 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 no. You're, you're, you're missing it. You're missing it. He is the exact representation. He is the archetype, the stamp that makes the impression on the coin. Christ is the one represent, representation of God, the exact physical image of God for us. What does the Bible go on to tell us? It goes on to tell us that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. He is the firstborn over all creation. And, and now, if you get into the world and somebody wants to start to argue with you, like, oh, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. How do I got like 19 chapters of genealogies about him then? That this person begat that person, begat that person, begat that person, begat that person. I mean, if Jesus is the firstborn, how was like 25 people begatted before him? Might be how I would ask the question. But this line here isn't speaking of firstborn in the sense of a position or a timeline. I'm sorry, it's speaking to positioning, not to timeline. And this was common in the ancient world. It wasn't just about were you literally the first child out of the womb. But it's about a position in the family. And if you know about ancient uh, families and the way that they they gave inheritances, inheritances, the inheritance was given, it's broken out into portions, right? And you know, if you've got four children, there would be, it would be divided into fourths. And in today's world, as long as you like all your kids the same, right? Each child gets 24, 25%. Well, in the ancient world, it didn't work that way. If there were four children, there would be five positions. There would be, so the, the inheritance would be broken out into uh, 20% instead of 25%. And the firstborn would end up with a double portion. And there was a positioning, there was authority, there was a natural understanding that everybody had that the firstborn was a position of importance. And you were the one who was to carry forward everything that the father had prior to that. So Jesus being the firstborn is about his position, not his timeline. And in case you need some biblical referencing for this idea that position and timeline don't always line up around uh, <clears throat> being the firstborn, you can take note of Psalm 89:19, where we're speaking of David and God says, Once you spoke in a vision to a faithful people, you said, I have bestowed strength on a warrior. I have raised up a young man from among my people. I have found David, my servant, with my sacred oil. I have anointed him. I have given him a position. My hand will sustain him. Surely my arm will strengthen him. And I will appoint him to be my firstborn. My most exalted of kings of the earth. Now, David wasn't the first king. David wasn't the firstborn. David in his own family. But God says, I will appoint him. I will give him a position based on my anointing, my hand on him. I will give him the position of firstborn. And that's the same manner that we we see Jesus being referenced as the firstborn here in Colossians. So, as we continue on, Jesus, uh, it, back in Colossians, we see one of my, my most favorite passages in Scripture. I love all of Colossians, it's so good. It, it just, it's focused on Jesus like all the time. Uh, so, it's just powerful. But it says, For in him all things were created. Say all things. All things, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Amen. Amen. All of it, church, we get so caught up in who's going to be the ruler, who's going to be an authority. what's my title going to be? How are they going to reference me? Am I important? Am I on the right side of the people who won, who were told that we are important now? Let me tell you, Christ is the key to it all. Christ is the key to it all. All rulers, all powers, all authority, all of it. Guys, even, even countries that don't rule the way we want them to be ruled. Even when our country isn't ruled the way you want it to be ruled. The Bible says that all of this was created for him. It was created through him. God is sovereign over all of it. He is the key to it all. And just a a quick aside, Jesus is not a created being. He created all things, the word tells us. If you need more scripture for that, Santosh reference, half of it, Genesis chapter 1, read John chapter 1, read those two things back to back and that'll tell you Jesus was there at the beginning. He was hovering over the earth. It was all created for him, through him, by him. He is the, the key to it all. The Bible refers to Jesus in Acts chapter 17 as from one man, all of the nations from one man. He made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times and histories and boundaries of their lands. So we're all worried about boundaries and people fighting over lands and things like that. Jesus already marked out the appointed times. We, we can fight and fuss and, and do all we want. It's all appointed already. God did this so that they would seek him, perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of them. And it says, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Offspring. He was before all things and in him all things hold together. It's the next portion of scripture there. He is before all things and in him all things hold (laughs) together. And church, let me just tell you, stop trying to hold it together. Stop trying to hold it together, church. You were never meant to we get ourselves in so much trouble when we try and hold it all together. Because what's pulling you from side to side was never yours to bear. It was always for him to bear. But we try and hold it in. We try and be the one that's going to make it work. Scripture says that he's the one who holds it together. We find that Jesus is referred to in Ephesians as the chief cornerstone. Ephesians chapter 2 says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens and God's people. And also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises and becomes a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being held together to become a dwelling in which God's God lives by his spirit. the church, the body, is being held together by Christ. If you'll let him, he'll do the same for you. Now, just like I'm not a coin collector, I'm not an architect either, but I know a little bit about what a cornerstone is. I know a little bit to know that when you're building something, if you don't get your corners and your edges right, Everything goes out of place. And I believe, if anybody's a mason in here, like a builder, uh, you you could tell me if I'm wrong. But I believe, especially in older architecture, if if you remove a cornerstone, you run the risk over time of the entire building falling. And if you build your building on the wrong type of cornerstone, you might as well have removed it to begin with. So, church, are you building your life on Christ as the cornerstone? Or is it built in something that you control? Well, I build my life on the fact that I'm a strong provider for my family. Well, that can be taken away. I've experienced that. Well, 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 I build my life on the fact that, that I, I have this position in the church. That can be taken away. I've experienced that too. Well, well I, I build my life on the fact that, that I have this relationship. We've all seen those taken away. What's your life built on? And if it's not Christ, maybe that's the reason for the crumbling, the cracking, that, that, imper- that imperfection, that limp, that, that frustration, the thing that keeps coming at you. Because are we building on the chief cornerstone or are we trying to hold it together all on our own? Colossians then goes on to say, and he is the head of the body the church, the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he may have supremacy. Again, we're not talking from the standpoint of timeline, but from the standpoint of importance. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile him to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And I want, to, I, want, I want to draw your attention to what Paul's doing here, guys. Paul is clearly attacking this idea of the intermediaries, right? He's saying God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. Where these intermediaries, they, they were like pour-outs portionally of God. No, no, Jesus is all of it. You, you get all of it. He goes on to say, through him to reconcile all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Right? There's this, where, where the predominant belief of the culture was that heaven and earth had to be separated. Because what's in heaven can't be imperfected by what's on earth. But here's the beauty of Christianity. Here's the beauty of our faith. What was in heaven came to earth to allow a perfect gateway for us to get in. We couldn't get there on our own because our imperfections were too much to bear and we couldn't be in God's presence. But when God looks at us, he doesn't see my imperfection. He doesn't see my short temper. He doesn't see my my inability to continually do exactly what he's called me to do. When he looks at me, he sees the blood of Christ poured over me. And in that, he sees perfection. And in that, he says, well done, my good and faithful son. Come and enter in to your master's presence. Not because of who I am, but because I've chosen to sit under the blood of Christ. And to allow that to be my entry point. See, what, what was trying to happen with these intermediaries is, hey, maybe we can be good enough. Maybe we can deny the flesh enough so that we can at least like attain to maybe that middle level where I'm not perfect, but I'm pretty darn close. So maybe I can help you out here, God. And God said, no, I'm not looking for you to come into the house and just be a servant. I'm looking for you to come into the house and be my son, to be my daughter, to be in rep- to be in relationship with me. Amen. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Church, trust Jesus. Yes. Yes. Just. Jesus. I have seen too much in the church of Jesus and my right beliefs. Jesus and following the right teacher. Jesus and all kinds of things that we want to add to Him in whom the fullness of God dwells. And every time you do that, you water down his power. Let's jump to Colossians chapter two. Verse nine. For in Christ... All the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. Amen. Again, I don't know what I don't know what your 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 intermediaries beliefs are, but in Christ the fullness of all the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. Realize, church, that there is no substitute for Christ, that in him we have all that we need. And what happens is when believers begin to drift into worldly living, that they're taken prey by man-made systems. And it's usually because they think that Jesus isn't sufficient to supply something that they need. So they turn to the world. They turn to themselves. It's what we do when we're when we try and hold it together on our own. Do you realize this? If I look at what the scripture says, that in the fullness of God, Jesus, or Jesus dwells, the fullness of God dwells within Jesus. Amen. And His blood shed on the cross makes you full, and, and you have access to the throne through God and he is the one that holds it all together do you realize that if you try and hold it all together what you're doing is ripping Christ off the cross and telling him his sacrifice wasn't worthy enough I need to be the one to get up there and burden myself with this pain because I want to hold it all together and I won't trust in God that's not how it's meant to be church He says for us to lay it down on Him. With Christ, you lack nothing. You have God's fullness inside of you. With Christ, you lack nothing. Church, can we say that today? With Christ, Christ. I lack nothing. nothing. With With Christ, I lack nothing. With Christ, I lack nothing. Maybe that needs to be what you say to yourself every morning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As you remember. Because many things are going to try and distract you. Mm-hmm. But the first thing when you wake up and just remember, With Christ, I lack nothing. We speak so many things over ourselves every day. Mm -hmm. Well, that was dumb, Jason. Oh, how'd you do that? Way to go, Purvis. I say that to myself all the time. Way to go, Purvis. (laughs) I can't. I started talking to my kids when I hear them say I can't. You can't or you haven't figured out how yet. You can't or you're not, you don't have the resources to get there. You can't, or you need to come to the Father and ask Him for some help. Come on. In Christ, I lack nothing. Amen. Amen. I, I, I don't know if any of you have uh, seen that, that movie Moana. Yeah? I've seen it maybe 13,000 times. <laughs> <laughs> but, but if you remember, there's Maui and he has his magical fish hook, Right? And, and it gets struck. And it's broken. And Moana is trying to tell Maui that we, we need to go back and we need to fight. And he says, without my hook, I am nothing. Without my hook, I am nothing. Because all of his faith, all of his power, all of his strength is tied up in this hook. And it got struck and broken. But let me tell you, church, Without Christ, we are nothing. But in him, we lack nothing. And when he was struck, oh, church, that was his victory. When he got struck down, that was his victory. The enemy thought he had him defeated, but that was just the beginning. With Christ, you lack nothing. And, and Paul says specifically that uh, you have been given, you have been brought to fullness in Christ, And this word fullness was used by the false teachers there in Colossae. It was used uh, to denote that there was a divine nature distributed amongst these numerous intermediaries between God and the world. And Paul was making very clear. No, no, no. Christ is the fullness. He has all of it. He's got it all. You don't, you don't need to, to try and pour out a little bit from each one of these intermediaries. I have full access to the Father. So we continue on to, uh, in, in Colossians, and it says, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. Let's pause there for a second. Legal indebtedness that stood against us and condemned us. As people, every one of us in here have fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible says all men have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and women. No single one of us could reach God on our own. We are, we, our account is too big to ever pay off. You know, you look at the world today and, uh, you know, there, there's this just battle against debt, right? And, and you know, people, there, there's so many people talking about today and how hard it is to, to buy a house. You try and buy just an entry-level house and you, you're talking about four and five and six and $700,000. This is the beginning out! Just, just like two or three bedroom. And you get into that debt and people say, how will I ever pay this debt off? I'll never do it. I can't. That's the level of our debt to Christ. It's an unpayable debt, our debt to God. We don't have the ability to do that. It stood against us and it condemned us. But God and Jesus having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. Come on. Amen. How many of you guys would love to get a mortgage notice saying, hey, it's been canceled. Yeah. Now I'm not a prophet, so, <laughs> but I'd like to receive it. The debt's been canceled. I can't do that to your mortgage, but D- Jesus did it to your sin account. Come on. He's taking it away, nailing it to the cross. Amen. And you live on Christ's account. Amen. You live in Christ's bank account. Thank you, Lord. Amen. You, you don't live in your own bank account. Mm-hmm. You, you don't live on, on what you did. You live on what he did. And there is no debit large enough that you could take out that would invalidate what he already did for you. So we get to live in Christ's account in. And that's twofold, by the way, church. We get the benefit of living on his account. But there's a responsibility when you live on someone else's account, right? There's something that you owe unto them for allowing them to, to press you through their account. There's a manner that you should represent them when you go out into the world, right? Because when you're putting that out there, it's their name on the line, not yours. So church, let me, let me challenge you with how do we live on Christ's account? Because the eyes of the world are upon us how are we holding ourselves accountable to the account that we're on? Are we living in a way that glorifies him? Romans 5.20 says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you, On Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. A version that I grew up reading and memorizing is that you have become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Mm -hmm. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Now, trust me, I am not the righteousness God in Jason Purvis. I am not the righteousness of God in Jason Purvis. But I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And when I go out into the world, I'm privileged to walk on his account. And I'm responsible to walk accountable to his calling. So we get to live on Christ's account. And finally, here in Colossians chapter 2, uh, verses 14 and 15, having disarmed the powers and authority, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Can we leave that one up? I love this scripture. I love this scripture. And having disarmed the powers and authorities. There's no power. There is no authority on earth or on heaven. That has the firepower to stand up to our God. He's disarmed them. They got nothing. Right? If you've ever taken a self-defense class, right, one of the first things they teach you is if you're, you know, you're in some sort of combat situation, first run. If you can escape, escape. No, seriously. That's what, like my, at my kids' uh, karate studio. They're like, what's the first thing you do if you're in combat? Well, see if you can get out of it. Why bother? Right? And the, the uh, master, Brandon, there, he'll, he'll tell you, like, I'm trained in very many ways to hurt you. But if I don't have to, I'm going to leave. So what does the Bible tell us, right? Flee temptation? Sounds about right. Mm -hmm. But if you can't, if you're actually in in battle, what's the next thing? Disarm the individual. If they've got something that's threatening to you, get it out of their hands if possible. Mm -hmm. Jesus took away all the weapons that the enemy has against you. Oh, well, that thing that you did way back then, remember? No, 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 that weapon... Invalid, gone. You don't even hold it anymore, devil. You're shooting blanks. Having disarmed the powers and authorities. This this is where my humanity comes out, and I just love this part. He made a public spectacle of them. He embarrassed them. Jesus didn't just like, oh, we won, okay, bye guys. No, no, no. He he makes a public spectacle of what the enemy tried to do in your life by nailing it to the cross. Amen. There, there, the imagery that's being painted here by Paul is the image of a, a Roman victory parade. Y'all know the Romans were not humble people. They, they were not just like, hey, we, we won, we rule here now. Y'all just continue doing what you want to do. When, when a Roman general conquered a city, they threw a parade. We talk about these ticker tape parades, right? When, when you know, somebody's going to win the Super Bowl here in a, in a couple of months, and then a month later in their city, there's going to be a, a parade all through the main street of town. This is what the Romans did. The Romans, uh, they, they had a parade through the center of town. And you know what they did? You never kill the king. When you capture a city, if possible, you don't kill the king. You actually capture him, and you parade him down the street. This is your king. And we are ruling over this land now. That's, what Je- that's the language that Paul is using when he says he canceled your indebtedness. He disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them and he nailed them to the cross. Amen. That's the beauty of the cross. Amen. What the enemy tried to do to break Jesus was literally his victory point in the, in the war. So what is the enemy trying to use to break you? What is he trying to, to wear you down on? Where is he trying to separate you from God? Perhaps that is literally the point that God wants to use to launch you into your victory. Because friend, you live in victory. Because you live in On Christ's account. You live in victory. Walk that way. Speak that way. Believe that way. That God has victory for me. I may be in the midst of the battle today. But victory is yet to come. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I may see a weapon coming at me, but God's already disarmed it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You live in victory. Mm-hmm. Can we pray? Yes. Jesus, I thank you for your victory on that cross. I thank you that you fought the battle that I could never win. You paid the debt that I could never pay. You are the fullness of God, and I get to walk in that daily. And in you, I lack nothing. Jesus, as we enter into 2024, we walk with intention under your ways. We recognize that there is no name above your name. And we know that there's a responsibility in our behalf to live in a way that honors and glorifies you. So today, God, may we be encouraged, may we be strengthened, and may we walk out in victory and claim the territory that you have called us to claim, Jesus. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. 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 Well, church, that was uh, your first Sunday in 2024. Yes. If you need prayer, uh, we'll have our prayer team up here uh, to, to pray. And if you want to seal up some of the things that God may have promised you, uh, we have people who can pray for you. Otherwise... Go out, be blessed, grab your kids, and uh, have some fun together.